you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. What is up, Sober Guy family? Thank you for tuning in today. Thanks to humans for bringing us in, and thank you so much for supporting the show. This is Seth Manter, and you're listening to the Tuesday episode of Sober Guy Radio. So today's episode is a super special episode. Um, I am featuring the very first alcoholic that we've had on the Tuesday episode. I'm talking with father, author, and former madman Jim Spina. Jim is a retired nuclear physicist and a veteran of the United States Navy that battled an insatiable 41-year obsession, compulsion, and desire to drink booze. Jim wrote, I almost murdered a complete stranger and embarrassing truths of a madman's journey with the intent of inspiring the addict or alcoholic that still suffers that there is hope. Before we get to Jim, be sure to check us out at thatsoberguy.com. There's a bunch of resources there. You could get all our past episodes. You could also get information on upcoming live shows and events. And also, if you wish, you could hit me up at seth at thatsoberguy.com. You could also hit me on Instagram at soberguyseth. So also, man, I just want to give a, give a quick shout out to uh, the homie Shane Raymer, uh, founder of Sober Guy Radio, a uh, super close friend of mine. Grew up to grew. We grew up together, drank together, partied together, uh, did a bunch of cocaine together, a bunch of crazy shit. Shane Raymer today is celebrating five years of sobriety. It's a fucking miracle. Shane, you're rocking it, bro. You are giving back to the community. What the Sober Guy platform has done for you and for many listeners out there is a miracle. Uh, keep up the strong work, bro. I'm proud of you. Jim, what's up? It's an honor to have you on today, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing well. Um, and it's a pleasure to be on your show, Seth. Um, I'm actually honored by it. And it's, for me, just the ability to talk about my experience um, is helpful to me. It's helpful in maintaining my sobriety. And my, my real prayer is, is that it helps just one person. So somebody grabs a hold of something that they connect with that helps them. And that's my goal. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's actually really crazy that uh, I think I've released about uh, seven or eight episodes on the Tuesday show. And you're my very first alcoholic that I get to talk to today. So I'm super pumped about that. I've uh, been doing a bunch of uh, research on you on jimspina.com. There's a bunch of uh, good, funny stuff on there. Um, you live a life of, of recovery, um, with humor, sarcasm, you get a, uh, you get a laugh at yourself. So I have a vision for this show that it's going to be, it's going to be, um, we're going to get deep. It's going to be, there's going to be some moments that, uh, maybe we may want to cry, but 
you know, the intent too is to keep it light, man, and to show the addict or alcoholic out there that still suffers or with the one that's early in recovery, man, that, you know, it's okay to laugh at some of the shit that we did. It's okay to laugh at some of the hard times that we have in early recovery and early sobriety. And it's, it's okay. It's okay to live life on life's terms, man. So, um, Jim, we're going to jump right into your story, man. I, I, I'd like you to uh, kind of tell us about, you know, your addiction, what it was like, uh, how you got sober and, and what your like is, what your life is like, uh, today. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start at the end and then, uh, I'll kind of, it, that'll naturally have me uh, weave my way back, um, uh, and talk about my life and how I got where I am and, uh, how I got where I'm starting right now. My sobriety dates, August 14th, 2016. So I just passed uh, two years. Hell yeah. Strong work. Congrats on that. I appreciate that. And, uh, it has, it has been a wonderful and a remarkable time and, uh, a time that I actually got to a point in my life for many years, never thought possible, uh, never thought possible. I claim August 14th because, uh, that's the date I came out of the coma. Um, I was an active alcoholic for 42 years. I started drinking when I was 14 and, um, I woke up after a seven-day comatose period. What had happened was, was that uh, I had had a traumatic bleed, hemorrhaging, um, and bled out on my kitchen floor. I was alone in my home, um, having driven everybody out, uh, as alcoholics tend to do. And um, my wife, who was uh, with her mother in Florida at the time, uh, had a feeling, a strange feeling about me, uh, and uh, she called my daughter. Now, a really unfortunate aspect of this that I regret to this day, you know, alcoholism has its regrets. It, it should not carry long-term remorse. You know, re remorse is like brushing your teeth vigorously after you get a cavity. You know, what the hell good is that going to do? If you regret, regret is saying that I wish I had done things differently, that that didn't have to happen. I was on the floor about 14 hours, they figure, <clears throat> and uh, she called my daughter. My daughter came by the home, long story short. She found me um, let out on the kitchen floor, called the uh, EMTs and an ambulance, and uh, I had hypothermia. Turns out when you bleed out, you can't control your body temperature, and even though it was August, it was, <laughs> was air-conditioned in the house. So um, I was freezing to death. Uh, I had virtually no blood in me. My, my pulse was uh, 140 beats per minute. I was trying to make about a pint of blood work. And what happens when, in your, when that happens to your body and you bleed out, um, primitive part of your brain starts shutting down organs uh, in an effort to save your brain. And uh, so I had gone through that, and I was in rough shape when I got to the hospital. Um, uh, they actually did resuscitate me. The first thing they did was the, first, the, the organ that was shutting down now was uh, my lungs. Mm. And uh, you can't go very long with those. No. So they um, they uh, did an emergency respiration where they stab a central line into you and uh, put a windpipe down into you, kind of like a little bit like you see on the shows. And I was put on a, me a mechanical ventilator. And uh, I was on a mechanical ventilator for um, the period of my uh, comatose period amongst many other um, devices that they insert in you 
sans permission when you're in that shape. And uh, they stabilized me. And I will tell you this part only because it, it, it's just, I, I really want to emphasize how traumatic this journey can be. Uh, and I know there's other people that have had worse bottoms than mine. Uh, and my bottom was hard. And I thought that would have probably been the end of it. I didn't think anything because I didn't know. Uh, I had, uh, yeah, <clears throat> I did not know at that point in time. I, I, I was not, I, I was not conscious. They stabilized me, uh, gave me transfusion. I was on a ventilator. Um, they told my wife that could well be brain damage from lack of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I was stable in terms of they had blood back in me and, uh, breathing uh, with a machine and at least oxygenating. Um, and there was a little respite. And the following night, um, I bled out again more severely in that hospital. And they could not, in fact, stop the bleeding. They did something called a, a rapid transfusion. It, it, it's, it is a, it's a very serious procedure. Transfusion itself, having been through many of them, another sad part of this journey, is a tough, it's a tough thing. That's a normal transfusion. It's a serious, it's not like you see on the show, on the uh, medical shows. It's considered a very serious medical procedure and they will not give you blood unless they have to because of the risk associated with it. You can die from a transfusion and people do. Emergency transfusion is even worse. Um, basically, they, I was in the hospital. They knew my blood type. I'd been tested, so they had me stabilized, but, um, Basically, they need to get the blood in you fast. And so they use your heart as the pump. And they uh, essentially stab a central line into this a suction vein of my heart, uh, drew blood into me, and put in about 12 units of plasma and blood. But I was bleeding out faster than um, they could supply it, even with my heart. Dude, so, so someone definitely had a plan for you. Yeah, someone had a plan for me, and uh, that was my higher power. And um, it, there was, you know, I used to believe in coincidences. I don't anymore. There are so many events I call them you know, synchronicities. You know, they seemingly unrelated events. That if, if I were conscious at the time, I would say, "Well, that was lucky. That was lucky." If you compiled my story, which I did, you, you cannot attribute it to luck. But <clears throat> I would have died that second time, and and. It, in fact, I damn near did. There is a device. What is normally done in that case is they do emergency endoscopic surgery where they'll go down and attempt to repair with an endoscope. And they can do wonderful things now with that. Uh, but the hospi most hospitals are, are not equipped to do that with this type of a bleed where you can't even be transfused that quickly. There's a device. It's actually considered obsolete now. Um, and it is a, it's a, it's a tube essentially. But what I'm going to tell you is it's a device that inserts a tube down past your vocal cords into your esophagus with what I'll call a balloon. It's more sophisticated than that, that they inflate and it pressurizes your esophagus and your stomach and it will stop an upper GI bleed. Uh, and it's an emergency means of doing that. Most hospital emergency rooms don't have them anymore. The one I was at did keep it in a refrigerator. Most hospital emergency rooms don't have a doctors um, that know how to use them. Uh, and I did. 
and he called for it. Uh, they got it. He knew how to use it. The installation is, it's not a straightforward procedure. They pressurized it and uh, stopped the bleeding. Wow. And then they called my home. Uh, I had to t- talk to my daughter to get permission because basically their phone call said, your father had another bleed. We can't save his life. We need to get him by shock trauma to University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center or he'll die here. And um, it's kind of a, I'm terribly sorry that my daughter found me let out on the floor. That's a, that's a trauma that I induced through my alcoholism. And I'm also terribly sorry she had to get that phone call. Um, I'm incredibly grateful that I happened to be at a hospital that had <laughs> a physician uh, that knew how to use um, a tube that could be inserted to stop emergency bleeding. And I'm also very hospital that uh, lucky that I'm within 30 minutes of uh, University of Maryland Medical Center has, if not the leading, one of the leading shock trauma centers in the country. And most of the shock trauma centers are in this country are, including the Los Angeles one, are patterned after the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center. They got me in it, and um, I missed a $30,000 helicopter ride, so pissed me <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? If you're going to pay thirty grand for a helicopter ride, you'll be able to be able to see the fucking city. Yeah, no shit. No shit. For sure. <laughs> so so, the, so you, you're, you're on your way to the University of Maryland Medical Center. Um, unconscious. Unconscious. Holding on. Well, you, you're, you don't, you're not really holding on to anything. You're, you're the, the medical devices that they have hooked to you are keeping you alive. Yep. Um, the doctor calls your, your daughter and is basically telling them, you know, if we don't do this, your father's going to die. And there's probably still a really big chance that he's not going to make it. And so so you get to the universe. So what is the shock trauma? What is that for, for, you know, people like me or listeners out there, what does that entail? Okay. So a shock trauma center is different than an emergency room, right? And it's, uh, it is designed, uh, well-designed shock trauma centers are designed. They have dedicated people on staff, uh, usually a team of specialists, uh, a rotating section. Uh, University of Maryland is a major medical center and a major hospital in the Baltimore area. And uh, they have a dedicated series of helo pads as well as uh, rooftop, uh, their own helicopters. And Seth, these things are not helicopters as we know them. Uh, You could not keep a guy in a coma on a mechanical ventilator uh, with uh, intravenous lines, fluids, drugs, so much critical life support systems alive in any helicopter. It's a flying hospital. Yeah. Yeah. It's a miniature flying hospital. Um, and uh, that's what they do. And so to, to, to get a guy in a coma on a mechanical ventilator, uh, that, um, basically has a, has a, uh, his own version of the, uh, could your balloon in it, blimp in him. Uh, it's a tough trick, but they did it. And they land a helo pad, and they're ready for you. They receive you in a bay, uh, take you off it. They know what they're getting. And um, 
it's an interesting story there too. You know, it turns out that you know shock trauma has got to be available to everybody. This is where you go if you get in a serious car accident and you're mangled yeah. uh, and you're still alive and you're not going to live in the emergency room. Uh, and uh, if they can get you to a good shock trauma center, that is the whole deal. What they have found out is is that the key to life is the amount of time it takes from the near-death event to being, arriving at a shock trauma center. That is a critical period of time, and that's kind of how they design shock trauma centers is, is that get you there as quickly as possible into the right hands that can do diagnostics and save your life. Um, and that is what they did. Um, they got me there. Um, I don't want to get it. It's, it's a semi-complicated story, so I'm going to leave it simple. So the solution was I had cirrhosis of the liver, and that's why I bled out. Uh, and I'll go back to that. But uh, it wasn't my first bleed. Uh, it happened to be the one that took me out, took me to my bottom. Um, if you call death and resuscitation your bottom, that was mine. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's what it took. Um, and they plan to do something called the, uh, it's a shunt. Let's put it that way. And they, when you have cirrhosis of the liver, some people get something called portal vein hypertension. Um, maybe 30%. That's my guesstimate based on what I know. But you can, many people have cirrhosis. It's not a good deal. It is a fatal disease on the long term. It's a scarring of the liver tissue. I had alcoholic cirrhosis. It's irreversible. That scarring makes it, uh, all of the blood in your body passes through your liver. So all your blood is purified by your liver. If your liver is 70%, 80% scar tissue, as mine was, um, it's like trying to pump blood through a rock for that portion of scar tissue, it's petrified. A lot of back pressure. That back pressure goes up into the portal vein, that's what they call it, portal vein hypertension, and it bursts vein and veins, varices are called, there's a, obviously a huge blood distribution network that goes through your esophagus and stomach, and it bursts those veins and you bleed to death. Uh, for people with cirrhosis and portal vein hypertension, bleeding to death is a very common form of alcoholism death and it is a catastrophic bleed you can have small ones as warnings or you can have one instant one and die if you're lucky you might die in your sleep usually not uh, so I just want to go back to some of the previous bleed outs because you said that you had some bleed outs before yeah that's um, an important point what what did those look like and obviously there was no I mean your your addiction didn't allow you to see that as a sign of that you were on the road to death, right? I'm sure that you probably, and, I, and I'll let you share, but, but my thought is that you kept drinking through these fucking bleed outs. Is that, yeah. is yeah, that it, where the insanity of this uh, yeah. disease took you? Now, all the right words. And uh, I was diagnosed with cirrhosis in 2006. I bled out fatally in 2016. I had 10 years with many, many catastrophic bleeds in those 10 years. I was hospitalized numerous times, received many life-saving blood transplants, was told at the end of the first one, I had lost so much blood. Doctor sat down, he's my liver doctor, and straightforward guy, very good doctor, and he said, uh, you know, 50% of the people that have a bleed like this forget 
dicotriosterosis, which makes it worse. 50% of people that live like this don't walk out of here. I put a toe tag on. Next one, it's going to kill you. Statistically, you got fucking lucky. Yeah. Stop drinking. And I tried. I did go to AA, and uh, I, by the way, am an advocate of AA. I, I, it, the concepts of it work for me. Um, I find sobriety amongst people trying to find sobriety. I find sobriety amongst alcoholics in recovery. That works for me. There's other forms that provide that. That provides that for me. And I went, and I tried. But here's the cycle that I want to help anybody that I can help. And wherever you might land, if you're a young dude, I started drinking at 14. I thought I was invincible. Uh, know where this goes. And if, but the person I was was the 30 plus years of drinking with cirrhosis, terminal disease. I would hasten my death catastrophically. Injure my, kill myself, injure my family. If I continued to drink, I would go to AA. I would seek with what I believed was to this day a sincere heart, sobriety. I and I had six month periods. I had one year period, eight month periods. I would relapse. Hmm. I was a, I was in the sober relapse, sober relapse, sober relapse, drink, sober relapse, drink, sober relapse cycle. <laughs> And here's my theory. Which is very I common. It's a, I don't, yeah. I, I don't want to offend anybody, but <laughs> for every alcoholic, you've had one cycle like that. Yeah. I don't believe, I do not believe in the no relapse bullshit. Yeah. Now, I think you might have a better record than a lot of people, but there's got to have been a point in your life, forget anybody else, where you said, I'm not going to drink anymore, and you did. That's a relapse. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So in a, in a sense, it's, it's uh, endemic to the disease, but mine was right in front of my face. And let me tell you the degree of the insanity. You know, it's funny when they list all the stuff that has to do with alcoholism, at the very head of the list ought to be insane because with respect to alcohol, Bill Wilson wrote, we have lost the power of choice with respect to alcohol. I firmly believe that to be true. That is insanity. I was a nuclear physicist, a professional. Uh, I retired. I had a good career. In that period of 10 years, I would go to work with plastic Ziploc baggies so that in the event that I had a catastrophic bleed and could make it to the bathroom, which I did in a couple of instances, I would throw up and vomit, projectile vomit blood in the baggie. <clears throat> When it stopped, I would make it to the men's room, seal the door to the stall, seal the blood, pour it slowly in the toilet. Blood is blood is a teller. Blood will tell your secret. You get it on porcelain, it stays. When I didn't want somebody coming in the bathroom after me and finding blood, geez, what's wrong with him? Pour, I would trickle it slowly from my one-gallon handy container that I kept in my pocket at all times for 10 years. And let it trickle into the water as I washed it between my legs and I'd flush it as soon as the tank was full and continue. Then I would fold the bag, wash it out, put it back in my pocket in case it was followed by another bleed. Usually they are, and you have to get yourself in the emergency room. That's the insanity I faced. 
I did, I bled like that on a drive home on Interstate 695 in heavy traffic. Luckily, I had my bag. Uh, I bled my wife on Thanksgiving Day of 2013, came in my apartment. She said, hi. I said, hi. I stood up, proceeded to projectile vomit. I had a catastrophic bleed, didn't know it was coming, and I projectile vomited and painted the wall 10 feet across the room with blood. The EMT said it looked like a fucking murder scene. Wow. This was my 10 years. Now, you can't tell me a nuclear physicist going to work, pre-planned garbage bag for a catastrophic bleed so that he can contain it and conceal it and keep his secret in order that he might drink that evening, which I did, uh, and pray that the bleed didn't return. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Uh, yeah, that's that's, that's and insanity. That, yeah, that's insanity. And that's one of the questions that I had for you was what did those nights look like going home or even the drive home? It was, you know, a stop by, was it a stop by the liquor store? Or did you have the fridge already stocked up at home to where you were like, all right, cool. I'm, I bled out today. I'm going to go home. I'm going to get it, my drink on and it, whatever it, comes from it. Like, I, I really don't care. I just need that drink. I have to it, have that It drink. depended. It depended. Uh, sometimes, you know, if the, sometimes the, the blood, you know, I would have a bleed that was catastrophic and I would end up in the emergency room. Uh, I never called the ambulance, but my wife did several times. Just the way it worked out, I probably never would have. Um, sometimes it was such a severe loss of blood though. Um, what happens if you lose blood, a lot of it, you will get severely anemic. I was walking around for the past few years, many times. Your body doesn't make blood very quickly. It's an interesting system. It's really complex how your body makes blood. It comes from your bones. Um, and it takes about a month or more to make a pint of blood, one pint. So for those folks that, and bless you all, you've saved my life, that donate blood. You saved my life more than once. I've got about 80 of your pints passed <laughs> through my system. I'm not sure who I am now, <laughs> and but I think I'm, th I'm grateful to all of you. But that one point that you give takes your body about about a month to manufacture. So if I if I had a two point bleed, two units, what they call it, um, you're looking at a couple of months uh, of anemic. I got to the point where I couldn't climb a flight of stairs without stopping at the top, uh, gasping my leg muscles screaming in agony, burning from lack of oxygen, my heart palpitating. I was ghostly white, my lips were blue, mm. and I was drinking and pretending it was no problem. I was even putting my wife's rouge on in the morning, rub it in my cheeks, wow. get a nice healthy glow. People were commenting on my pallor, um, <clears throat> and I tried. And then I would go and I would get my month and I would get my chip and I would get my two and I would get my three and, I, and I'd get some blood back. Uh, and I loved, at the times, I would take walks with my wife um, and I would love it when I could get to the point where I could walk with her without asking her to stop so I could catch my breath every block. And um, 
I got to the point where I actually liked the bleed that was sufficient for me to have a transfusion. Because when you get a transfusion, it takes away your anemia right away. I call it post-transfusion high blood. It was good. That's sick. That's yeah. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's funny, but it really is. It's, it's tragically not funny uh, to the people around you. And uh, they think you're insane, and you are. Your physician thinks you're insane, and you are. And I want to talk about one thing here, and that is <clears throat> you talk about all alcoholics are liars. Well, I don't know if that's true. You know, I'm not into this indictment of alcoholics uh, personality. Alcoholism no more defined me than somebody that has been diagnosed with terminal cancer is defined mm -hmm. by that disease. Mm -hmm. Does it change them? Yes. Will it change their behavior? Yes. Will it ultimately kill them? Yes. Does it define who they are, who their true personhood is? No. It does not. Alcoholism never did define me. Yet, it raped me. It raped me of my dignity, my life, my family, my self-worth. Okay, so in, I'm, not, I'm not trying to send the impact that it, it's, it's meaningless, but what I am trying to say is, is that there is one truth of the fact that all alcoholics are liars, and that is because we've got a terrible secret to keep, and that's our alcoholism. The reason we've got to keep that a secret is because for us, that's oxygen. If you tell an alcoholic that's been drinking any period of time, I'm not talking about somebody that's in the initial adaptive phase, and I had a long functional phase of alcoholism. I'm talking about somebody that gets to the point of alcoholism where they know damn well, regardless of what they tell other people, they cannot get through a day without a drink. They might not have to have it in the morning if they work, as they did, but they know they will have a drink at some point in that day, and they know they need a drink. And if they do not have one, there will be a physiological reaction. Their hands will shake. They will get anxiety. They will heart will palpitate. They are physiologically, psychologically, and in my opinion, spiritually addicted to all yeah, and and Jim, you bring up you bring up a lot of great points there. Um, you know, one of one of my true beliefs that I hold near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, there's a there's a for some god awful reason there's a big st stigmatism behind alcoholism. Um, us alcoholics, you know, there's that thought that we're fucking horrible people by nature. Um, yeah, and. For me, like I truly believe that when I was caught up in my uh, alcoholism and, and, you know, I was, I, I believe I was addicted to drugs too. I did a shit ton of drugs. Um, but what it's, what I've, what I've awoken to realize is that that's not who I wanted to be. It's not who I strive to be. Um, you know, it turned, it, it started very innocently. Um, for me, it took away my ability to feel um, it allowed me to deal with some of the, the, the shit in life that life had to give me. Um, and it took that away, uh, towards the very end of my, my journey and my, my, um, alcoholism, I couldn't go a day without a drink. And that was usually, um, a, a fifth of Jim Beam and a 12 pack of Budweiser. Um, that's kind of how I rolled. 
And I never intended to be that way. Um, I don't, I, I don't know when the addiction kicked in. I don't know when the disease kicked in. I can't put my finger on it, but I believe it was that very first drink that I took yeah. is when I was addicted and it was not my intention. And because that happened to me, um, doesn't make me a bad person. Now, some of the shit that I did horrible, like unexcusable. I, I will never uh, be able to forgive some of the stuff that I did, but I forgive myself um, for those, for those acts. And so you bring, you bring up a great point, Jim, is that, um, you know, it's a, this is a disease. This is not a choice and it, it definitely does not shape us. It does not, um, it's not a, uh, it's not our character. That's not who we are. Um, it's, it's, it's what the disease does to us. So, uh, thanks for letting me interrupt you there. Um, no, but you I, hit I just, so many important points, um, uh, that I've learned in my 42 years and the reflections that I had, I had an awakening, which I'll hit on when I came out of my coma. But a couple of points. One is I already talked about that alcoholism it didn't define me. It's not my true personhood. There is a terrible stigma about alcoholism. And what stigma? Well, social stigma is for alcoholism is like any other stigma. It's a set of beliefs based on ignorance, which is just misinformation, that people will hold that harm other people. Uh, they've done a lot of studies now. St st stigma is so, social stigma is incredibly damaging to the recipient. Racism has a terrible stigma associated with it. Uh, they have done studies now uh, that show that the stigma associated with racism is so powerful it actually changes the DNA of the affected ethnic group hmm. in a harmful way. Now think about this, there's this nature-nurture argument. No, 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 this is saying the opposite. This is saying that the stigma is so damn damaging, it changed the, your DNA, that the DNA, now you are genetically impaired because of the environment. So alcoholism is an incredibly intricate and complex, I call it an affliction, and there's a reason I do. I certainly believe it's a disease, all of that and more. It, it is chronic, it is progressive, it is fatal if untreated. There you go. The American Medical Association has classified it as a disease, though there has been much dispute about it since then in 1959 and well before then for hundreds of years because we have not been able to define it. It has a number of number of complex factors that are involved in it. Nobody chooses it that I know of. No alcoholic that I know of chose alcoholism. And every alcoholic that I know of that drank long enough wishes to God that they did not have the affliction. I got to a point in my life about the second five years of those that 10 years where I asked God to take a limb. I said, if this is about a trade, then put me in a car accident, take my arm, take my leg, save my life, take a limb, 
<clears throat> and remove this. Hmm. I didn't choose it. It chose me. There's no question in my mind that I was an alcoholic at birth. Just because I wasn't consuming ethyl alcohol doesn't mean I wasn't an alcoholic. I had an interesting experience. When I had my first drink of alcohol at 14, alcohol was magic. It affected me in a way totally different than it affected other people. And I have spoken at a lot of AA meetings. And one thing I have found incredibly common about alcoholics is, okay, my first drink was 14. That's 43 years ago. I remember that day. I remember it well. I remember what I drank, how much of it I drank, was served for dinner that evening, what I ate, who I was around, what the conversations were, what music was played. Now, I'm going to ask anybody out there that's unfortunately as old as me, remember, what, pick, just pick any day you want 43 years ago and give me some details about it. You can't. The brain doesn't work that way. But the chemical, the reaction within my brain to the ethyl alcohol molecule was transcendent. It is different. It was transformative. It changed me. And I have had so many alcoholics come up to me and say, I had the same experience. I had my first drink at 15, 16, 12. One woman remembers her first drink when her father gave it to her. Um, her grandfather gave it to her when she was six. She was sitting on his knee. She let him sip his beer. And she remembered everything about six years old. She was in her 60s. What happens? Well, here's my theory. Alcoholism is alive. It's alive as long as you're alive. It will kill you, and it will get you alone first. And if you are an alcoholic and continue drinking, I dare you to defy that profile. Hmm. You will die, and you will die alone. And usually you'll leave a grave that nobody thinks is worth pissing on. That's the trauma of this disease. And I want to talk, just, I'm going to close the stigma piece. Because my goal is to help alcoholics. And for the non-alcoholics that are holding this stigma of alcoholism near and dear to their heart, I recognize that it's because of a lack of information. And I just urge you to do a tiny bit of research. Go to my website. There's so much information out there. The AMA has classified this as a disease. It is chronic, fatal, and progressive, and has been classified as such for 19, since 1959. That's over half of a century of medical professionals. And it is far more than that. And what I would tell you is, is that do you hold anybody else with a fatal disease to the degree of responsibility for that disease that you hold an alcoholic? And the answer is no. And they've done many, 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 many studies on the effects of stigma. And alcohol, the stigma associated with alcoholism is one of the most damaging. It is more severe than that associated with schizophrenia. Uh, most chronic mental diseases. Uh, and the reason is because people, society in general, believes that the alcoholic has a choice. And therefore, they project guilt 
The first form of social stigma is to reject and not associate with the alcoholic. The second is to shun them because you want to belong too. Everybody wants to belong. The non-alcoholic wants to belong to non-alcoholics. Rejection of the alcoholic who is in a group of others. And ultimately, if you're shunned, if the results of telling your secret is, is that you're shunned, rejected, isolated, you'll lose your employment, you'll be an outcast, who are you going to tell that secret to? That's why I never told my secret. That's why I, that's why I projectile vomited in a quart gallon-sized baggie. I would lose my job. I would lose my home. I would lose my family. I would lose my friends because I have a disease. Mm. And it wasn't right, Seth. I do not relieve myself of the responsibility of any of the things that I performed wrong or the harm that I did to others as an alcoholic. I have a responsibility to, to make things right, but I do not have a responsibility to live in shame. I do not have a responsibility to live in shame. And I believe as human beings, we're responsible for our own growth in life and not to impede the growth of others. And so if I can help anybody take a step out of a cycle of shame, shame does nothing for anybody. It adds no value to any life. Either the transmitter of it and certainly not the recipient of it. There's no shame in alcoholism, it's a disease. It needs, alcoholics need help and they need to know it's okay because an alcoholic cannot be helped unless he asks for it. Denial is so powerful because a secret has to be kept. And I did. When I awoke, Seth, <clears throat> when I came out of my coma, I had a spiritual experience. It's not the subject of my book, and it's not the subject of my discussion here, but I had an awakening. I saw things differently, and I was relieved. Alcoholism was lifted from me, and I knew it was lifted from me. I had, in my 42 years, alcoholism is progressive. That's what they mean by chronic. So it grows inside of you. That's why I say it's alive. If you're alive, it's alive. It's proven to have interdependencies and relationships with neurotransmitters, chemicals, genes, uh, genetics, social stigma. Society's alive. Your body's alive. This disease is alive, even if you only want to think of it in the sense of the fact that it can't be defined without experiencing it. That's a living entity. Absolutely. I recognized alcohol for what it was, but I knew that there was nothing I could have done to have relieved myself. I didn't choose it. I could not choose it. My higher power lifted it from me. And he didn't lift it from me, so I could now walk the earth sober and say, ha ha, now I'm sober. 
He did it so that I might be fit for a certain period of time. I don't know how long. I, I pray that it's long enough to help people because I spent a great portion of my life so consumed with alcohol. I was not, I couldn't help myself much less anybody else. And that's what I would like to do when I get joy out of that now. I have not had a desire, a compulsion, an obsession to have a drink of alcohol since that day or since I've walked out of the hospital. And I've had some tough times since then. Times that I can tell you I would have most certainly drunk, drank at. I, 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 I avoided emotional pain like a baby. That's what alcohol does to you. It's part of its dependency. You want to numb yourself. You isolate yourself from life. And you need it physiologically. I no longer need it. I still go to AA meetings for a number of different reasons. One, I connect with al alcoholics there. Most important part of my life. Yep. We all have a need to belong. We're born with a sense of belonging. No man has a story where they're shunned and isolated and it ends well. We're not islands. And we all want to belong. And that's where nationalism comes from. You know, I was in the United States Navy. I served on board a United States nuclear submarine. And when the flag was hoisted, then we'd have quarters topside and we'd salute the flag, put your hand on your heart. The national anthem was played. There was a sense of belonging that happens. Sense of belonging. It felt good. Why did it feel good? Because I belonged. I belonged to something that I believed had inherent value and there was more than one person in it. We all crave that. For me, I get that in a number of different ways, not just with alcoholics, but I certainly have a community of alcoholics, recovering alcoholics, and non and and re all recovering alcoholics are struggling alcoholics, just like all people are struggling people. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Absolutely. And they're my family. So I go and, and my hope is, is that I, I can reach somebody and help somebody. I'm available. I make myself available. Uh, I'll tell my story to anybody and I will tell, uh, I'll tell, what I'll tell you is what, <laughs> how powerless I was how powerless I was. And yeah, I just I just want to I just want to touch on the community real quick that you talk about Jim because sure, so. it's 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 super important to me. Um and 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 also my obligation uh of being a, a man of sobriety or in sobriety. Um so first off, I truly believe that it's my obligation to um spread the word to get the word out there that it's okay to be an alcoholic and it's okay to be an alcoholic in recovery. I am obligated to do that. That is what keeps me sober today. Yeah, I have seven years that I don't, you know, I don't really count that. My most important day is today. And the way that I stayed sober today, Jim, I get to talk with you. I entered into some meditation and I talked to about six people today complete strangers, two of them who I work with about being an alcoholic in recovery. So I most definitely am very open, honest, very opinionated about it, but that is my obligation. I must talk about my recovery and my sobriety 
on a day-to-day basis. Getting into the community is fucking huge. Yeah. Um, the amount of love, whether you find that community in Alcoholic Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Food Eaters Anonymous, whatever anonymous it is, the community that builds those rooms or that is in those rooms is a miracle. It's, it's, it's amazing. The amount of love you will feel. Um, it's, it's, it's almost one of those things that, uh, is, it's kind of like a dream to me because my reality is a, is a hammered drunk fallen down, um, Seth ending up in jail. <laughs> that is my reality. Going into the rooms of AA, NA, being around community, um, that is that is the dream um, for me. And I, I just I, I don't I don't really know where I'm going with that, Jim. But I just wanted to share that and share with um, the listener out there that still struggles with this shit, or, or, or the person that's new um, to sobriety or recovery, or if you're white knuckling it right now, like the miracles that happen in these rooms of um, you know. AA, NA, uh, refuge recovery, whatever it is that you go to um, celebrate recovery, it's a fucking miracle. It is. Every day you're sober is a miracle. There's no question in my mind because <clears throat> there's no power on earth that can produce that. Yeah. And your point about relationships and, and belonging, and, and really it's about helping, just helping somebody else. It, that is just, it's it's a vital part of my life and yours. And I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, I know that I came across, my story is pretty somber and I understand that and it comes across somber, but I want to tell folks another thing though. I was born with a sense of humor. It's satirical. It's sarcastic. And I hope you will visit my, my blogs are embedded with a sense of humor. Dude, your blogs are hilarious. Um, what <laughs> just like I gotta pull this one up. Uh just the just the title was it killed me. And this is on jimspina.com. Um just give me one second. I, I love the title. Uh on hope, freedom, and the power, powerful fellowship of testicles. Like <laughs> hilarious. That was that was one of uh one of my favorite favorite ones. And then um, you know, the the episode two a stigmatism like that. That was a good one too. Um, I, Jim, I, I just discovered the, the blogs today. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm definitely gonna, gonna do some more reading on them, but, uh, you have some good chuckles in you. And you yeah. know what? I, we're all people. And I think alcoholics have the right to laugh just as like, is any, just as much as anybody else. And here's one last thing I have found. Alcoholics are some of the funniest damn people in the world. My brother's not an alcoholic. He's a great friend of mine. I'm, I'm blessed with having a brother and a brother who's a great friend. And he says, what are you doing these meetings? And he's picturing this very somber. These meetings, have, we discuss broader philosophies, histories. These are intelligent men and women. And their sense of humor is astounding. And, you know, I, it... It, it just occurred to me when I was going to meetings, when I came out of the hospital in sobriety, it was like the power of humor as a part of the healing process. Absolutely. It's just so, yes, it's a serious topic. You know, global warming is a serious topic. World starvation is a serious topic. 
there are serious, this is a serious place we live in. And personally, I do not know how anybody can endure a life where they deny their, themselves the pleasure of humor. And it starts with the ability to laugh at yourself. And, and I gotta tell you, I've done some funny ass things in my drunkenness. Um, I regret them, but I look back on them and say, <laughs> you cannot help but see the ironic humor in some of the shit we did, Seth. Yeah, absolutely. And some of, some of that stuff that I did, um, you know, back when I was caught in my addiction, man, and, and, my, and my alcoholism, um, a lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm able to laugh about today um, keeps me sober today. Yeah. You know, you know, like I think this morning and I got up, uh, the alarm clock went off at three 30 this morning and I got up and I was like, man, seven years ago, I'd probably just be getting home from the bar and calling in to sit, calling in work sick and, um, not going to bed and continuing the drinking party, but it was just, you know, and I, and I laugh at that shit and it's like, God, dude, how fucking stupid, <laughs> insane was that? But, you know, obviously, you know, serious subject, like serious sickness. Um, but it's, it's one of the flashbacks that I had this morning that it was like, Oh my God. You know what I mean? It just, it just, it, it came to me. Um, so yeah, I, Jim, I totally agree with you, man, that being able to laugh at, at some of the, some of the stuff that we did, um, you know, it's, it, it's huge for me. It's, it's, it's a part of my recovery for sure. It is. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a physicist, so I was, I'm a pretty creative guy. And I remember when, uh, we take long road trips, uh, around the holidays and my wife would want to see her family. And, uh, you know, I was a beer drinker for a long period of time towards the end of my alcoholism and the fatal phase. I, it's easy for me to pop down a case of beer and a quart of vodka, maybe two quarts yeah. of vodka. But, you know, you drink a case of beer on a seven-hour trip to the other end of New York State from Maryland, and uh, you got to take a leak. And if you're trying to take a leak on the New Jersey Turnpike, mm -hmm. driving in Christmas traffic, it's tough. Yeah. But I rigged up the piss drive <laughs> I want to hear about the business drive. <laughs> no, nah, it's quite simple. It's a little, you know, everybody that I know of, particularly guys, you know, you, you find yourself having to take a leak in the car. If you can't pull over, you find a bottle. You know, some guys find an empty water bottle, something like that. Just relieve a little bit of the pressure. Well, I'm thinking, if I take one of those big soda bottles, those two liters, okay, because you don't want anything... You, it tends not to be a comfortable application. Uh, they, they make those edges rough. So if you, if you take a piece of Tygon tubing and you, and, you, and you get it in there and you, and you tape it good, you form a nice seal, pressure boundary seal on that two liter size receptacle. And then you bring it up and you go to the store and you pick yourself a U-size little funnel. I call it U-size. Tailor it right, right to your application. <laughs> And they have small, what they're called, micro funnels. Yeah, that's what I'd be rolling with is the micro funnel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I use the micro funnel too. But it, it, it just means it wasn't gallon size, Seth. I'm not going there. <laughs> Anything smaller than, you know. And it's a little micro funnel, and you, you make sure that's on your Tygon tubing. And then you have a two-liter receptacle, emergency receptacle, and that will hold you a good while to a rest stop. 
Now that's just funny shit. Dude, it's, <laughs> an, it's, an, it's insane. It that, is insane. That is insanity, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, um, the normal person out there doesn't, you know, do the research and put the science behind it. And it, Jim, it's so funny hearing it um, from a physicist, physicist, right? Because it's totally oh, yeah. technical. Uh, there's a there's a science behind it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I was figuring out the density of the you know the density of the the urine and how much the weight of the which I know how much the weight of the two liters of urine is. By the way, that's truly question for you. And whether or not I had a sufficient seal on it that it could hold. So that because I didn't want to piss all two liters because my wife would not have to be happy with this system. <laughs> And, and I even had to figure out whether or not the pressure differential would be sufficient that I could get a vacuum and form a siphon. This required sophisticated physics. Hydro, it was actually hydro, hydraulic mechanics. Yeah. <laughs> the best use of my degree. <laughs> that, is, that is hilarious, dude. It's, you know, it's, and it, it's, it's so funny, like kind of the same technology, um, you know, with the funnel and the Tigon tubing. I, I usually turn that into a beer bong. You know, so, so it's, 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 it's just the, the, the insanity of the stuff that we come up with, um, to continue the quote unquote party to continue our drinking. Um, you came up with the, with the, what did you call it? The drive a piss or the, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was my the, the drive a piss so that, um, you could continue to drink on the road. Right. I had even so, designed because when I had gotten to the point in my drinking where, I was having so many bleeds and transfusions. I wanted to do a home transfusion, but you can't do that. But I figured out, I did enough research on the system that uh, if you could get people with your blood type in your family to donate to you, it turns out that blood that they store it at, at 39 degrees uh, Fahrenheit is good for 90 days. And I could get enough units of blood stored in my refrigerator at 39 degrees Fahrenheit and then I figured out the mechanics of a transfusion system that I was prepared to do a self-transfusion, which was the ideal, because when I was suffering from this chronic anemia from hemorrhaging of my gastrointestinal system, which could have killed me, I could have done a home transfusion, not had to wait for a doctor to authorize discharge from a hospital. I could drink and go. Hmm. Now, that's absurd. Yeah. Yeah, insanity. And, and I almost had enough donors. I had a couple of I said, you know, I, <clears throat> I misled them to believe that blood would be stored at the hospital bank. Um, you know, sometimes you have to tell truths that you aren't really true that you hope might, might someday come true. Big fat lies so that you yep. can continue drinking. Yep. And, uh, the sad part is, is that I would have home transfused myself and killed myself in order to drink without being hospitalized. Now, what the hell is that all about, Seth? It's just, uh, that's just the nature of the disease, man. The insanity that it brings us, that it brings us through. Um, hey, Jim, I want to, I want to get to the book. I want to talk yes, about sir. the book. I want to talk about um, where people could find you. Um, but before, but before we get to that, man, I, I just want to say, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story, dude, your story of, um, pretty much, you pretty much died, Jim. I did. Um, no, I, I did. I was resuscitated. Is, is, is a true sign, um, that this disease, you know, like they say, ends us in one of three places. Uh, for me, 
it was an institution. I went to, I went to a 30 day rehab facility institution, straight up definition of an institution rehab. Um, jails, you know, been to jail many a times. My, my addiction, um, my, I didn't end up there. Uh, that's not where it ended. Um, and for you, death, jails, institutions, and death. And it's, it's most definitely, um, where this disease ends us. And you are a, um, you're, you're, you today, Jim, your life today is a miracle. It's a miracle that you're alive. Um, you know, it's a miracle that you're sitting here, uh, all the way on the East coast. It's fucking 1045 in Maryland. Um, you know, that we get to sit up here and talk about sobriety and being sober. We get to laugh and joke about some of the shit that we did. I love the story of the drive a piss. Um, it's, it's, it's hilarious. The, the, um, the, the thought process behind that. Um, so I want to get to the book. So what was the motivation of the, uh, I almost murdered a complete stranger. Um, and, and what, what is, what was the intent behind that? Okay. So I will just say that, um, when I had my spiritual awakening in the hospital, uh, and uh, while I was not coma, while I wasn't <clears throat> in our world here, um, I was told that I was going to come back and I was going to have alcoholism lifted from me, not by from external, inside of me. And I remembered it, and I remember what was said to me, and I remember that it was said to me that I hadn't fulfilled my de- a destiny which was to help other people. So, and then I came to, it took a little while to grasp returning to this <clears throat> time frame, And I did, but I remembered these things and I would, I would wake up in the morning and every single morning since then I have woke up and given thanks to my higher power whom I choose to tell God for the fact that I wake up in the morning and I don't want to drink, it's a miracle to me. For 42 years, I thought about it. And now I realize just the realization that I'm not thinking about it makes me think joyfully about the fact that somehow, some way, in some manner, I am not obsessed with alcohol. I'm grateful for that. And I knew I had to, I knew I had to be of service. I didn't know exactly how. Um, and Pretty quickly, the idea, I had wanted to write a book for a long time just to be an author. Not, I was never going to write a book about my alcoholism. Uh, and when you read this book, you're going to know I got nothing to hide. So there is a lot of freedom in not having any secrets. And uh, that was a tough decision to make. And uh, I'm grateful to the people, my higher power, and that, uh, that gave me the courage to make the right decision. And just be honest. because. Lying doesn't help anybody. Who out there is going to get helped by me if I can concealing the depth and depravity of my disease? Mm. So I, I decided I need to be honest. I wanted to write a book. I wrote a book. The title came to me because it just popped in my head because did I kill myself? Well, 
I like to call it involuntary manslaughter. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, yeah, I participated heavily in my death. I was told I was going to die. I was vomiting bright red blood. I was hospitalized. I, I was, and I continued to drink. Yeah, I think for a decade that would say you. So, but who would have died? It wasn't my true personhood because people stopped knowing me a long time ago. Hmm. And that's the transformative nature of this disease, and it's very degrading. And to me, the true tragedy of this disease isn't the fact that it's fatal. There's a lot of things fatal, and it's a slow fatality generally. And there's a lot of other ways you could die. That's horrible. But the true tragedy of this disease is that it is fatal because you cannot tell anybody and in the process you will be transformed into a person of much lesser value than you could have been. I didn't like myself. I knew I had no self-worth. I could not respect others. I could not serve others. I could not help others. And that's the way I would have exited. And that's where the title comes from. I almost murdered a complete stranger. And I did almost murder that stranger. And, but for the grace of my God, I would have. I would have done that. And then it all clicked for me. Uh, because the title had real meaning to me. The, the title is the my life story. And I decided what better way to help people uh, than to get a piece of written material in somebody's hands. My thought has always been, and it is right now, Seth, when you told me about this show, if I can through my entire lifetime post when I awoke sober and have stayed sober, God willing will, help one person, help just help them out of that drink, sober, relapse, horrible, cycle of death man it will all have been worth it and i know if i do i'll probably never know that i was a piece of a chain and a link and that's okay too that's okay too and if somebody can pick up this book and take a look at it and say take a look at one section of it and say that's me let's see where did this guy end up son of a bitch yeah yeah that's why i wrote the book yeah, no, and I, I I love that. I read, I think I read on your website that you want people to read this book to um, <laughs> say to themselves, Scott, I hope I don't end up like that guy, or I don't want to end yeah. up like that guy. And I, yeah. I fucking love that, man. That's so, there's so much honesty. Um, and, you know, the other, the other thing that I absolutely love about your story, Jim, and about the book and the title of the book, um, how you, how you relate the stranger to um yourself caught in your addiction that's not that wasn't your original self and uh you became that stranger uh pretty much from from what i understand it that moment that you had that first drink um progressively yes progressively right but it it, it initially started and you know that's that's one thing um you know that uh i strive for in you know and i'm not there yet um it's this is a the the path of recovery it's it's something that i have to work on on a daily basis but uh, my ultimate goal is to come back to my whole self my original self um the, the true person my true person the person that i was 
meant to be when I was placed upon um, this earth and in this life. Um, so I absolutely, absolutely love the title of the book. And I love how you relate uh, that stranger um, to who you were when you were in your um, alcoholic stages. I, I absolutely love that, Jim. You know, Seth, in a way, we're blessed being alcoholics because like I'm like you, I want to return to my true personhood. I can remember times when I was 20, 21, 22, 23, where people would say, hey, you really helped me with that. Or I mentored a, a college student, a fellow student, that you really helped me. And I remember later, stories told me later when I was 40 and then 50, and, I, and it piercing remembers of, in contrast, I remember people saying to me, you're a fucking asshole. And I thought about that and they've come back to me and I said, yeah, I, 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 what, look at this, kind of, what, what happened? I was an asshole, I became an asshole, that was the stranger. But you know, here's the good thing about the blessing is, is that because we're alcoholics and recovering, we can return to our true personhood. I met a guy the other day and I thought to myself, what a fucking asshole. And then he proceeded to talk to me about, he said, you know, I never had a drink. I'm thinking, oh my God, he's not an alcoholic. He's an asshole. What's he going to do? <laughs> yeah. What's going to happen when he has a drink? At least I got a group of recovering assholes to go yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. What's this guy's excuse? You know? That's that's so funny. Um, so, Jim. Uh, so, the book's out there? Yeah. So, so when, when is the book, when is the book release? The book is, uh, my website's www.jimspina.com and the book is going to be released September 12th. Oh, uh, so that's on, tomorrow. On Amazon. Yeah. September yeah, it is. Tomorrow. So check it. And so I got to tell people we did not coordinate that. It's no, we, we did not. We did not. It's just, it's just out of quint. It's the way it was meant to be. It, it was. And uh, so if they go to Amazon and you can, you'll be able to get to it through my website, you go directly on Amazon, the book will be there and it's a paperback and an ebook. And um, I'll just mention that the, and I mention this only for the sake of it might help sell a book to help other people. I will make no money from the sale of this book. Um, if there are to be profits, I have donated a hundred percent of them to a local, uh, recovery house. It's a rehabilitation center for alcoholics and drug addicts, uh, that I happen to know a number of the staff on, and they are a dedicated group of professionals to help people. So I only mention that I, that gives me no glory that it's, it, it, there's no egoism involved in that. My point is, is that if you choose to decide to, to buy the book, I'm not a guy out here, oh, Jesus Christ, now he's trying to make money off his sobriety. No, trust me. I'm not trying to make any money off my sobriety. I can't pay off the debt that I owe. But you might be able to, as a somebody that's listening, you might be able to help somebody get sober um, because if there's anything to be made from the book, it's going to go to a house where somebody can walk off the street, get fed three meals a day, get help, get talked to by professionals and maybe, maybe, and I've seen it happen, walk out a sober person. Yeah, no, Jimmy, you bring up a great point there, man. Like 
Um, we don't, we don't do this shit for money. We do this out of love. We do this for the alcoholic or the addict out there that still struggles. Um, and you know, our, our goal is the, you know, if there's one person out there that's suffering that we got to help today, um, God damn it. It's, it's been a, it's been a good day. Um, yeah, Jim, we're going to wrap this thing up, man. Um, it's, it's been, it's been a great honor, uh, to talk to you. I always say, you know, every guest that I get to speak with, um, I've, I've developed a new friendship. Um, and I, I, I most definitely expect you to, to keep in touch. Uh, I will ha- hold up my end of the bargain of that. You know, it may be a couple months down the road, you'll get a, you'll get an email from, uh, Seth at that sober guy saying, Hey Jim, what's up? Um, but, you're part of the fellowship now. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. you're going to hear from this asshole. But I am a recovering <laughs> asshole. <laughs> Brother. You have an excuse. Right? <laughs> um, so, so one thing I like, to, I like to end with, Jim, for the addict or alcoholic out there that still suffers, uh, if you could offer up, you know, just a little bit of advice, a little bit of hope, um, yeah. what would that be? The small piece I would offer you is, although my story is horrible, the disease is horrible. But as it progresses, I know what happens when you get in the cycle, and that is you lose hope. Hope, 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 hope is the last choice of free will that we have. And here's what I would submit to you is look at it the other way. If anybody could be a person that you would say from the outside, there's no hope for that guy, it would have been me. Doctor said that to my wife. And yet, there must have been hope for me because I'm here and I'm alive and I'm sober and I'm talking to you. Hope is always there. There's hope for your recovery. The things you don't think are possible, are possible. I never thought I'd be sober. I never thought I'd enjoy being sober if I had to be. Hope is always there. And the last thing I will say is, fuck stigma. Okay? Stigma does not define you. This disease does not define you. You don't need to carry any shame on you because you didn't choose this. I know you didn't choose it. Okay? So tell yourself you didn't choose it but have the courage then to ask for help because that's the ultimate spit in the eye of stigma. Stigma does not want you to ask for help because that means you have to say, I need help. And you know what? We all do. And that's the first step to recovery. Say you need help, ask for help and know there's hope. It'll, it'll work. Yeah, Jim, I couldn't have said it better uh, than that. You know, hope, fuck stigma, and ask for help. Um, this 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 path of recovery, this path of sobriety is, is definitely um, by the grace of a higher power, whatever it is that, uh, you know, that you believe that higher power to be, whatever it is that that addict or alcoholic out there that still struggles that uh, is spiritually connected or, or not spiritually connected, um, this, this, this addiction, this alcoholism shit is, is not, is, is not us. Um, and, and if we are willing to, to ask for help and, and, and fuck stigma and, and realize that there is hope, there's, there's definitely, um, a will and a path in a way, Jim, 
much love to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day or out of your night. Uh, I think it's 11 o'clock in Maryland right now. Uh, super, super honored to have you on. My brother, Seth, I just wanted to tell you, I appreciate it and wanted to say thank you really for the honor and the privilege of the opportunity to be a guest on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for tuning in today. Much love and respect to you and keep your blood clean.